starting a new series. Uh, I'm going to work our way through uh, what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So we're right in the beginning of that today. If you uh, look at my car today, you can grieve with me. I learned that deer can't read. They couldn't see that it said Dodge on the front of my car. (laughs) No. It does not say Ram. Uh, And then I drove up Main Street the rest of the way home and it was muddy and so my car looks very sad today. I normally been driving up through the middle. You can go kind of make a lot of turns and go from here to my house, which is up on the hill that way. So I've been driving up through the middle while Main Street has been torn up. And the other day, uh, you know, I have a GPS unit on on my dash, and I, I just leave it on all the time. And the other day, I was driving up the street, and I thought, you know, and, and well, what happened was I was behind a truck going 15 miles an hour. Now, it's bad enough that the speed limit is 20, but the guy's going 15. It was like, take a breath, man. Come on. And, and so I'm, I'm driving up, and I was actually, I would be coming down this way, and I'm watching my GPS unit, and I go, there's a cutoff right there. I could cut around this guy. And I thought, well, I'll just kind of keep going. And it was a good thing I did, because when I got around over here, I realized this is one of those rare errors on the GPS mapping system. Somebody who made this uh, somewhere said this street goes all the way through, but it doesn't. There's a, there's a big dead end and a little cliff right there where there are some apartments. So if I had taken the shortcut, it would have brought me to a dead end and taken more time than going patiently behind the fellow going 15 miles an hour. I, I've titled my sermon today, Happiness the opposite of self-esteem. As we come to the scripture today, we're going to find Jesus' prescription or recipe or map for happiness, but it doesn't seem like a map to happiness. Listen as I read from Matthew chapter 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up the mountain, and when he was seated with his disciples, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That doesn't seem like a recipe for happiness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word blessed here means happy. Now, we don't preach a lot about happiness because sometimes we get confused by the preamble 
to the Declaration of Independence of our country, which says that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Is that in the Bible? Did God create you and say, now you just go find your bliss? Any way you like it, whatever suits you, go for it. Have a dream and you'll get there. No. But he does give us a prescription for happiness. But it's not the way we think happiness will come. We think happiness will come according to our desires. If I desire to have a certain career or desire to be married to a certain person or desire to have a certain skill or play a certain game, we think if I could just do that, then I will be happy. And we live our lives pursuing happiness. And what happens is we come to a dead end. Because God's path to happiness takes us down some roads we wouldn't normally go. And one of those is right here, or or several of those are here, and and we're going to start in this great passage of Scripture. We're not going to cover all 12 of these verses today, but we want to start with verse 3 when it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Authentic happiness, real happiness, begins with spiritual poverty. The word for poor here is the Greek word for a beggar. They had a couple of words for poor. One of them is the word used of the widow that Jesus said, look at that widow, she's putting two little coins in the treasury. You remember that story? He said she was poor. But this word is the word for a beggar. And it literally means to to like crouch down because the beggars in that day would, would sort of cover their, they would cover their face and crouch down and hold their hand out because they were ashamed. They were beggar poor. The widow that Jesus talked about would be what we call today the working poor. I've been working poor, as many of you have when you start out in life. You don't have a whole lot, and you qualify for uh, below the poverty line or whatever it is. Um, But I've never been beggar poor in terms of of finances, he's talking here, though, not about financial poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty, spiritual beggarliness, to be completely, to, to, to have nothing. And he says that is the path, that is the path to, to happiness. What does it mean to be in spiritual poverty? Um, I, I think the story, this story from Christ really lays it out for us. When he says two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, that was a man who was very religious, um, to some extent following the Old Testament way of worship, but not exactly following it. He'd added some things to that, but he counted himself as very religious. The other man was a tax collector. Now the tax collector was a man who worked for the Roman government that had conquered Israel and, and that whole area. And so it was the, the oppressor. It was the outside authority. And if you were a, a, a Jewish person who worked for the Roman government, you were like the worst of the worst. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give 10% of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Two different personal perspectives on who they were and on what they possessed personally. Spiritual poverty. And Jesus says about these two people, I tell you, this man, the beggar, he went down to his house justified, and that means to be made righteous by God. This man went down to his house righteous rather than the other one, for everybody who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. When you look in the spiritual mirror, do you see someone who has what God needs or needs what God has? Now certainly there are, there are two aspects to this. One aspect is before salvation and the other aspect is after. And I understand that after salvation, God has done some things in us and, and he has given us a spiritual gift. I understand all of that. But if you are here today without Christ, or even if you are in Christ, when you look at yourself and think about who you are, do you swell up with pride like the Pharisee and think, I'm really something. I'm not like these other people. Do you know that God doesn't judge on a curve? He doesn't grade on a curve. Listen how the Apostle Paul evaluated his life before he was a Christian. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. When he looked into the mirror, you know, now as an unbeliever, as an unbeliever, he was walking through life saying, I am something, I am the top. And according to human standards, he was. And he was doing all kinds of things, including oppressing Christianity, because as a Jewish man, he thought that was the thing to do. And he was walking tall right up until the point at which God struck him down. And then he looked up to heaven and he said, what do you want me to do, Lord? Now, years later, he looks back at his life and he says, I was the chief of sinners. He thought he was the chief of, of religious people, of spiritual people. I guess he was the chief of religious people. But he thought, I am really something before God. He says, in reality, I was the worst sinner. That's what it means to have spiritual poverty. And Jesus said, this is how we come into blessing. We understand our perspective before God, our, our, our position before God. That's what this verse means that so many of us have memorized. By a free gift you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Why did God have to give us salvation? Because we couldn't contribute toward it. John MacArthur put it this way, the door into Christ's kingdom is low. And no one who stands tall will ever get through it. So what we come to understand is we don't bring anything to the table of salvation. We don't walk up to, to, to God and say, well, 
here I am. You're lucky to have me. And yet, that really is what you have to think if you think you're going to do enough good deeds so that someday when you show up in heaven, you'll stand there and say, just look at my record. I'm good enough to be here. Why won't that work? It won't work because God's perspective on us is this. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Look at Matthew 5 and all the way to the end of the chapter. Verse 48. What is God's standard? According to verse 48. Perfect. Be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. So we're going to show up in heaven with our good works in tow and say, look God, look what I've done. And he's going to look at us and say, you haven't done one single righteous thing. You know why? Because you're sinful to begin with. Your hands are dirty. There's no way you can handle this white thing and it not come away brown. And so we come to God with nothing and we say, here I am. I have nothing to contribute. And he says, that's just fine. I'll give you everything you need. Even among those who think they're pretty good, I've never heard anybody say, well, I am faultless. I am completely perfect. I am ready to go to heaven because I, I've got every single thing squared away. A few years ago, I went to use my debit card and it didn't work. That's, that's a real nerve-wracking feeling. I won't ask you to raise your hand if that's ever happened. And it says, not approved. Oh. And, and people say, well, you know, our machine's been acting funny lately. Oh, that's cool. You go to the next place, whoosh, not approved. So I go to the bank, and I say, you know, something's not working with my debit card. And they punch in my number, and they say, do you know how much money you have in the bank? And I say, well, I... Or do you know what your balance is? And I say, well, apparently I don't. They say, it's minus $1,300. <laughs> and my first thought was, why in the world do you let that happen? <laughs> Even if it was me, you should say, no, you can't do that. <laughs> Somebody got my numbers and my access and helped themselves to my money. Our money. And uh, went through quite a process to get that back. I thought... I had money, but I did not. Wouldn't it be a shame to show up in heaven someday and to think, hey, I'm ready to, I'm ready to pay my bill here. And God says, you're bankrupt, buddy. You got nothing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the people who see themselves as spiritual beggars who, who, who won't even look up to heaven uh, like the man praying, uh, and, and they just say, oh, oh God, can you please give me salvation because I have nothing to bring to the table. Christ says, if you can understand that you are a spiritual beggar, now you're in the position to be blessed. 
You're in the position to be blessed because what he wants to give to you is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the, the phrase kingdom of heaven and the use of the word kingdom in the New Testament has two or three different applications. And that they're all sort of in view together, but we understand that there will be a time yet in the future when Christ will reign literally on earth from Jerusalem, from the throne of David, and he will reign for a thousand years. And properly, we would say that is the kingdom that has been promised to Israel. That is part of the kingdom. We would also say that God is the king of the universe. Um, We know that Satan has power now because God allows him to have it. God is the ultimate authority. And so we would say, I am am part of God's kingdom. And and, uh, that is an accurate statement. And and Jesus is talking in this this broad sense here of saying, I want to give you the kingdom of heaven. And and so if we're going to understand what it means to be given the kingdom of heaven, we need to ask the question, what is the opposite? What is the opposite of Christ's kingdom? It is the kingdom of Satan. Now I guarantee you that none of you got up this morning thinking, I'm in the kingdom of Satan today. You might have thought that about some other people or certain parts of the government, but we don't typically think that way. But the opposite of Christ's kingdom is the kingdom of Satan. Listen to what Ephesians 2 says. You he has made alive. Here he's written to Christ, writing to Christians. You he's made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course or the normal pattern of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once all conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. Now why is Satan called the prince of the power of the air? Because he doesn't have the ultimate authority. God has the ultimate authority, but God has allowed Satan a certain free reign. And and that's another sermon on the glory of God and how God is working in the universe. But God has allowed him to have that certain free reign. And God says before... We are part of Christ's kingdom. We're in the kingdom of Satan. And what is that kingdom characterized by? This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk like the rest of the Gentiles or unbelievers walk in the futility of their mind. You ever get frustrated with the way that unbelievers think? Certainly in this political season, there's been some time to reflect on ways people think about the world, and you're thinking, why can't you see this? There is a futility to the thinking of the Gentile, the unsaved mind. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness, being past feeling, being past a conscience. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Now, as I've mentioned already, did did you notice there are some political races going on? I have summarized the arguments of both sides of every political race. I, I, I have studied at length, and I've figured out what they're saying. One side makes claims. They go, blah, 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 blah. And the other side says, liar! 
And then this side says, blah, 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 blah. And this side says, liar. <laughs> and then you read those articles in the paper, and the paper says, you're a liar, and you're a liar. Because they fact check it all, and they go, well, he told half the truth, and he told half the truth, and she said this, and she said that. And, 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 and honestly, I, I, I believe that, that political administration is like the weather. Do you want to know what it's going to be like? Go outside and see what it's doing. And then in two hours, go outside again and see what it's doing then. Who knows what's going to happen? They make claims. I don't know whether they're sincere. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But we don't know what part is sincere and what's not. We tend to think they're saying things they don't mean many times. But you know what? The lies of the politicians are nothing like the lies of Satan that are passed around through the world system, through his kingdom. Here's one. Drink responsibly. Yeah, that's a great idea. There's only one problem with it. Once you start drinking, you don't have much responsibility left in you. And, and more and more alcohol seems more and more responsible as you go along. How about this? Legalizing marijuana would be good for our society. Yeah, it's really had a beneficial effect so far. I'm not talking about the medical thing. I, I don't have an opinion on that, to be honest with you. The doctors will have to come in on that one. But I'm just talking about the whole recreational perspective of getting high. It's great to get high. Just do what you want to do. Is that going to work out? Satan wants us to think that works out. Women should be able to control their own body all the way to aborting, a child that they don't want. You see, that sounds really good up front, but on the completion of it, it think, really? Your control over your person is so valuable that you can terminate the life of another person. I read something online, you know, when you, when you hit the blue E, it takes you somewhere, and there's some news articles out there before you do your search. And, uh, and there was a study on men who cheat on their wives. And I'm, I'm working on a book that's going to touch on some of these things. I thought, well, I want to see what they say. So it said, fact number one, in the study on men who cheat on their wives, fact number one, men who, most men who cheat on their wives are still in love with their wives. I had a man come in my office one time in Tukwila, He'd been referred to me for counseling. I, I really don't know why he came. He said, I'm, I've got a problem. I'm in love with two women. And I looked at him and I said, and you're married to one of them, aren't you? He said, yeah. He had a wife and a mistress. And you know what he was there trying to figure out? If there was a Christian way, he could keep both of them. <laughs> dude, dude, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> You know what? That man didn't love either one of those women, did he? Who did he love? Himself. 
And yet, Satan wants you to think you can love one or two, three or four. You can't. You can't. In that same, I read some of the responses to this article about men who cheat on their wives. <laughs> and little, you know, somebody's little picture off their Facebook is there, some woman, and she wrote, fact, because <laughs> it was written that way, fact, response, fact, response, fact, cheating breaks up relationships despite what this stupid article says. <laughs> the devil has inspired our world with lies that discourage and demean and entrap people. But we'll never escape until we realize that we are spiritually bankrupt and we have no hope or help outside of God. And we come to him humbly and say, God, I need you. And when we do, he removes us out of the kingdom of Satan and puts us into the kingdom of God. Look at this. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption or the payment for our sins through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. The kingdom of heaven is to be connected with Christ and to have all of the blessings that He wants to give us, joy and peace and freedom. He wants to give us peace not like the world gives. He can give peace in the midst of difficulty. That's authentic happiness. That's not just happiness that lasts for a little while. So the first landmark on this map to happiness is recognizing our spiritual poverty. And the second one is very similar. Look at verse 4, please, of Matthew 5. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, if you're not familiar with the, that word and its spelling, that's the word for when you're grieving. The word mourn, like in the morning, is M-O-R-N. The word for sadness is M-O-U-R-N. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The question we need to ask here is, what are we supposed to be grieving? What is the grief about? Is he saying, blessed are those people who have lost a loved one? Blessed are those people who have lost a job? Blessed are those people who have some real difficulty and they're sad. No, he, he's not saying blessed are you when you're sad. He's saying blessed are you who mourn and it has a particular reference. He's talking about mourning over your beggarly condition that we just talked about in verse 3. You realize, oh, I'm, I have nothing with which to offer God and I have no help in my life. I need God and there is a grief about that. When I was a youth pastor, we planned a, a big trip to California. going to be a 10-day long thing, and we are going to do all kinds of stuff. And a particular girl called me up not too long before this trip, and she's crying on the phone, could hardly get the words out, and said, I can't go on the trip to California. And I said, why is that? Because I got caught drinking on the ski bus. Okay, and as the story unfolded, that wasn't the first time, and her parents had said to her, if you get caught drinking on the ski bus, you're not, or I don't know exactly how they put it to her, but the, the punishment for drinking on the ski bus was you can't be with the youth group for 10 days straight. Okay. 
just a little hobby horse there, parents. Don't punish your kids by taking them away from church. Just my opinion. Um, but in talking to her mom, I said, well, I'm, I'm looking toward the day when she's not just sad because she got caught, but she's sad about her sin. It's kind of quiet on the other end of the phone because mom and dad's lifestyle really didn't support that kind of discipleship. Are you sad about your sin? Or do you really think your sin is no big deal? Have you heard of a guy named Jerry Sandusky? If you haven't been paying attention to the news, he's the guy that abused a whole bunch of boys back there at Penn State University. And you know what he said when he had a chance to make a statement at, the, at his sentencing? He said, in my heart, I didn't do these disgusting things. Now, what does that mean? Ten different boys, uh, he, was, he was convicted of abusing ten different boys. I presume a good number of those boys testified, if not all of them. Other people testified. He was tried by a jury of his peers, and these were not all of the accusations. These were only the ones he was accused of. And yet at the end of all of that, he says, in my heart, I know I didn't do these disgusting things. Can sin blind us so much that when we look in the spiritual mirror, we go, I'm not a bad person. How does that happen? Listen to what Paul told Timothy about this spiritual perspective on your life. Um, we're to be grieving our sinful condition. What gets in the way of this? Oh, excuse me, I guess I didn't put that scripture on there. Let me... Uh, Oh, am I out of sync? Let me look. No. I just left something off. In 1 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul said this to uh, Timothy. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. They will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. He says there are people who have been in church, and they're going to start to speak falsehood, spiritual falsehood. And he says the reason for that is their own conscience has been seared with a hot iron. Now, now, you understand that in, in medicine, uh, you can, sometimes they'll actually seal something up, you know, by using heat. I had, a, I had a friend, I had a friend who used to seal up his cuts by pouring chemical over it, you know, the, the cleaner that they use on auto parts. He was a mechanic. When he'd cut himself, he'd run cleaner over it until it cauterized it. He's my age, and he's still working on cars, so it, it hasn't affected him yet, I guess. <laughs> Esther Neufeld told us that in, that in Togo, the, uh, I guess the kids at least, maybe the adults as well, the skin on the bottom of their foot gets real tough and real thick because they walk barefoot a lot. Um, is your heart, has your heart been seared so that there's scar tissue over it, your spiritual heart? 
Has it been seared by sin so that it's not sensitive to God anymore? Or is it tender toward God? What gets in the way of a tender heart toward God? Well, certainly the love of sin does. Um, in Hebrews 11, we read about uh, Moses. It said, uh, there is a pleasure to sin, albeit a pl passing pleasure. Sin looks especially good. I, I apologize again. I've left part of my notes on here. and Didn't quite get the scripture written the way I, I intended on here. It's my fault. Um, sin looks good before we do it while we are contemplating how good it will feel. And so as we look toward it, we say there is going to be pleasure in this sin. And when we do the sin, there is a little bit of pleasure that goes with it. And then, of course, there's guilt and there can be complications and stuff and such. But we love sin. The reality of sin, though, is like a frozen pizza. You ever go to the store and think, I better get a frozen pizza. That'll be quick and good. <laughs> How many of you have done that? Yeah, raise your hand. You know what I'm talking about. You look in there and you go, wow, wow, that, I, I think this time, I think this time it's going to be really good, right? And you put it in the oven and you're there and it's never as good as the picture. It's never as good as the picture. <laughs> And that's the way sin is. It's never as good as the picture. There's a little pleasure, but it's never as good as the picture. But we love our sin. And so as we, as we contemplate our standing before God, if we continue to love sin, it makes the skin over our heart tough and God's Holy Spirit can't poke us. There's also the love of self. The love of self um, I don't know about you, but I don't like to admit when I'm wrong. I'm much happier to be proven right. <laughs> but <when I laughs> you be quiet. <laughs> Sorry for passing that gene on to you there, dear. Um, Most of us don't like to be wrong. And when God looks at us and says, you're wrong, we have a choice to make. Are we going to say, yes, you're right? That's what confession is, by the way. Confession is when we agree with God that we have done wrong. Or are we going to fight what God is saying? David is called a man after God's own heart, King David in the Old Testament. Even though... He, he committed adultery and murder and lying and all of that whole terrible thing with Uriah and Bathsheba. Why does God call him a man after his own heart? Because when Nathan the prophet came to him and described how he had sinned, David said, you're right. And we have some psalms that we believe are the product of the mourning of his heart over his sin. Now, Saul was the king before David, and Saul was given some instructions at a certain point. He was supposed to go do something, and it included getting rid of all of the livestock of this, of this one group of people, and, and he didn't do it. They kept some of the livestock, they kept some of the best possessions, and the prophet came to him 
And he said, have you done what the Lord said? And he said, yes, I have done what the Lord said. And the prophet said, then what is this bleating of the sheep I hear? And Saul did not even at that point say, well, you're right, I disobeyed God. He said, well, it was for this reason and this reason and this, and, and he tries to explain himself. He was not a man after God's own heart. Mourning or grieving over sin brings comfort because it brings in God's forgiveness. The only way you can have a conscience that is tender is to admit you're wrong every time God points it out. Every time God points it out. However painful that might be, we have to do it. We have to do it. James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. We like to hang on to our sin and hang on to ourself because we're afraid if we really admit that we're sinners, that we haven't done what God wants, we're afraid we're going to feel bad and be nothing and, and have no value. And, and just the opposite is true. When we admit what we've done, God comes along and he turns us into the, the character of Christ and he makes us into a genuinely good person. 2 Corinthians 7 says, Godly sorrow, this mourning over sin, produces repentance. That's a change of the mind and the behavior which leads to salvation. It's not to be regretted. In other words, this grief, this mourning is not to be regretted, not to be, not to be uh, run away from, but clung on to. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world is, I'm sorry I got caught. The sorrow of God is, I am a sorry person. I'm grieving my sin. I'm saying, God, you please save me. You please change me. And, and God says he will comfort us. And David writes this, blessed is he, happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity or hold him guilty, but forgives him in whose spirit there is no deceit. Do you want to be blessed by God? Then you need to admit your sin. Certainly this has a great application to the time before you come to Christ as your Savior. I, I don't know if everybody here has believed in Christ, but you need to consider your spiritual bankruptcy. And it, and it doesn't, while it might make you sad to begin with, you need to know that there's great joy that will come as you put your faith in Christ. But it has to continue. It has to continue in the Christian life. We have to continue to see ourselves as needy before God. We have to see ourselves as people through whom He works, not people who have something that He needs within ourselves. And so we humble ourselves and we come and say, I am your servant, please use me. A week ago, uh, week ago Friday, Sue and I had Malachi and Kylie 
all to ourselves while mom and dad went to a concert and had some sanity time. And we took them to Coconut Kenny's. And we rolled up lettuce and dipped it in the salad dressing, and we ate pizza, and everybody got their own cup for pop, and it was wonderful. You know, as long as you keep giving stuff to your grandkids, they love you. <laughs> Just give you a clue if you need help with that. Everything was going real good right up until bedtime. And Grandma got the two kids there sleeping together in the double bed, got them in there, read them a book, and tucked them in, and then Grandpa went in to finish the deal. But somebody wasn't quite ready to go to bed, kind of wanted, said, Grandma said she would come and sleep with me. I thought, no, <laughs> Grandma probably isn't going to do that. And, and, uh, and then about that time, Malachi says, we didn't brush our teeth. <laughs> and Kylie goes, Because she knows she's getting out of bed. So where's your toothbrush? We left it at home. Are you not using my toothbrush? So we got the toothbrush out of the guest bathroom, so if you stay at our house, be sure not to use that toothbrush. No matter how much fun you have planned in your life of sin, there's always going to be bedtime. There's always going to be a time when it comes to an end unless the joy of your life is founded on the unending happiness of salvation in Christ and righteous living in Christ. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who grieve over their sin, for they will be comforted with God's forgiveness. Heavenly Father, it's so easy for us to think we are something, especially after we've received your forgiveness. We've walked with you a while. We think we really have it all locked down tight, and, and we just need to continue to be spiritual beggars before you, saying, please, work in us, work through us, change us, make us like Christ. Help us, to, help us to walk in humility before you. Father, I pray for those who might not have yet believed in Christ. Give them the courage to humble themselves today and to believe. And when they believe, give them the kingdom. Show them how great it is to be delivered into your glorious kingdom. I pray in Christ's name, amen.